Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you guys today. My name is Dan Jacobson. I serve as a campus pastor. I don't have time for this. We got to get into God's word today. Thank you. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. I, uh, I'm just delighted. I'm, I, uh, I, I'm delighted that Pastor Steve opened up the pulpit for me to speak today and to uh, invited me to come be with you. I always enjoy my time. I, I bring um, greetings and um, condolences at the same time from the folks of the HP campus because we've been through our construction and our building is pretty good. <laughs> and so we're um, praying for you. <laughs> and we're excited for you. Hey, I'm delighted. You know, whenever, this has been the story of the HP campus. Whenever we've made space, God has filled it up. That's just been our story. Whenever we made space, God just fills it. And I'm pumped to watch what God does when we create more space in our church for God to fill up. And it's just, I, I pray that this is a story that we will look back on years from now and say, you know, I didn't know what to think about it, blah, 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 blah. I was inconvenienced for a couple months. But had we not done this, then God would not have done that, and that was so good, so it's worth doing this. Follow that? I don't know. The rest of the sermon will be a lot easier to follow, I promise. We're going to take a little break from Romans chapter uh, 6 today. We're going to just be out of that. Um, for a one-week hiatus. Is that okay? I heard the collective moan. And I'm not sorry. I don't mean that sarcastically. I know it's been such a tremendous. Have you enjoyed the Romans series? I mean, it's been a, it's been, it's a good book to know. Such rich truths. And so um, we're going to just press pause on that for a moment. And today I want you to open up in your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And today uh, we, have, we have before us the question, what do you do with the stuff that you've seen? All of us in life have seen something. All of us in life have um, seen things we wish we could unsee. Uh, we're not going to go there. But what do you do when you see something incredible, see something in a new way? What, what, what does God want from us when he shows up? And that's the question that uh, we have posed to us here in John chapter 9, which is going to orient all of our thinking uh, this morning. We come to uh, the middle of, of John's um, uh, book of signs is what we call it. It's all of these miracles that Jesus did to show us something about himself. And uh, towards John chapter 9, Jesus is getting into uh, the, the thrust of his ministry and he starts to have a great following and great buzz about him. And people are seeing things happen like never before. And that's what we want to jump into right here in verse 1. So if you got John chapter 9 open in front of me, you say, I got it. All right, and are you here today to hear from God's word? Yes. Amen, let's, let's, let's jump in. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, here's a question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, in, in, pardon me for a moment, but... Uh, when you go through pastoral training in seminary, they teach you that in the moment of somebody's grief or their pain, to talk about the abstract problems of evil is really unloving to them. I don't know if you've had um, that experience where something tragic has happened to you and all you want is someone to give you a hug. And then here comes second, sem second year seminary student with all the answers. And they say, well, you know this happened because of the fall. And you're like, I don't care about the fall right now. This stinks. And... Um, I want to look at this and be like, these disciples, what a heartless question. I mean, here they are pointing the finger at this blind guy. And I guess, why not? He can't see that they're doing it to him anyway. Never mind. Bad joke. Bad joke. 
And they, they point at him. They say, Jesus, rabbi, teacher, hey, what, what say you about this man? And historians tell us that this was a very regular question in the day of Jesus because back in Jesus' day, to, to be suffering from a disability or deficiency it was assumed that you were being punished for some sin. At the core of Job, the massive amount of, that, that exists in the book of Job, maybe you've read that, you have Job's friends telling him, hey, Job, what sin did you commit that your whole life fell apart? And this was common thinking, is that if you were suffering, it was because you had sinned. And this question is incredibly compelling. Their ancient categories of moral responsibility then were confused with this man's situation. He was born this way. So here's the thinking. Let's just think through this together. Um, if God is punishing the parents for their sins, why would he take it out on their son? Everybody, where's the justice in that? And if then this man sinned, we have to ask ourselves, well, when and how that he was born this way? And whatever Jesus says next is incredibly important for you and for me, who have each in our own ways experienced our own deficiencies and our own deformities. If Jesus says, well, obviously it was the parents, he was born this way, then that gives uh, a justification to all of us in this room here who blame the problems of our parents upon our lives and, and see all of our issues today as a result of their issues. And we would ask God, where's the justice in that? And if Jesus says, well, actually, it was this man who sinned, then all of us here today who have experienced secondhand suffering, who have experienced suffering in the hands of someone else, who know that our pain is not our fault, would be plunged into deep despair. We'd ask God, where's the justice in that? And so the question is out there. The disciples have asked Jesus, who sinned? And Jesus lets it linger for a second. And then he speaks into the air something shocking, something surprising. He, he says right there in verse 3, it's not that this man sinned nor his parents. No. But a third way. That the works of God might be, the word is displayed. Say displayed displayed in him, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus acknowledges, yes, this is an injustice. And no, God didn't just make him blind just so that Jesus could pull off a miracle in a moment. It's in spite of this man's condition, in spite of this injustice, that now you can see. God, God is putting something on display for us. God says, I'm going to display the works of God in him. John, John 9, it can be divided up into three acts, and this is going to be my structure for this message. If you're taking notes, I want you to just take, take these three headings, these, these three headings. The first one we see here in the first act is the display, the display. This is, this is the display. The first couple of verses of this passage show us the display because Jesus says, I'm going to do something that's going to display God's power. You're going to see that this is about this man finally getting his sight and you seeing the power of God in the midst of it. It's going to do something. He's going to put him on display. And um, Let me just ask you a question. Aren't we glad we have a God who puts himself on display? You, you may not have thought about it that way before. You may not have 
had eyes that were looking for God. I hope after this message is over, you do. We can see God's workings in the world because he moves in our physical daily lives. The ways that he responds, Jesus is saying, if only you had eyes to see what God can do, you'd see the error in your simplistic assumptions that actually this is about him seeing and you seeing. It's about all of us seeing. This is amazing and encouraging for all of us who feel our own deficiencies, who feel our own deformities. Because while we may not be physically blind, maybe you know that you're weak or you're inadequate or you're struggling or you're lacking wisdom. Maybe you're trying to figure out life. Perhaps you've been on the wrong end of someone else's sin. Maybe you feel like damaged goods. You're not sure how to move on. Jesus is showing us that in our deficiency, God has an opportunity to show up and show off. And if you feel like your life is completely beyond you, friends, you are the absolute right candidate for a miracle. To give meaning to what Jesus was about to do, he proclaimed in verses 4 through 5 this. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night is coming when no one can work. And all of you night shift guys said amen. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That echoes back to John's prologue, which we had read right here in our service. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And here Jesus is claiming it. I am the light of the world. And to display himself as the light, here's what he did. He knelt down next to the man. And I'm not making this up. It's right there in the text. He hawked and hawked and hawked a few loogies. It's the first time I've ever used the word loogie in a message. I hope it's the last. And I'm not going to provide all the gory details. You can, you know, imagine this nasty scene in your own mind. Um, John tells us that it was enough for him to make mud. How much spit is that? It's a disgusting amount is the answer. Um, you come to my house in our backyard, we've got kids that love digging for worms, and um, like we got this rocky area where it's kind of nasty. And the other day, my, my son was spitting, caught a bad habit from his dad, and um, then he started sticking his finger, and I was thoroughly grossed out, thoroughly. And um, I realized that's ironic because I'm preaching this message where Jesus does the same thing. So my kid's just like Jesus. Who knew? <laughs> he sticks his finger in it and rubs it around a little bit, and then he... <laughs> He picks it up, and he anoints the man's eyes with it. That really reframes the phrase, rub some dirt on it for you, doesn't it? And he says to the man, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And John tells us very simply, so this man got up, and whether by faith or by fear of Jesus, we don't know. But he followed his path that he had taken many times in his life, in his blind life, to the pool where he'd often go. And he dunked his head and light started to fill his eyes. John says, so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. On the surface, this is a story of an outcast boy getting the ability to see, but... John doesn't just write it for us to hear a cool story about Jesus' power. This is the story of how Jesus works in our lives to bring light to eyes that cannot see and 
faith to hearts that cannot believe. When God gets a hold of us, he doesn't start with the enlightened ones among us. He starts with the blind, the humble, the broken in spirit ones. It's those through whom he chooses to display himself. And if this guy begged for a decade or two and thought he could hide his new life when he went back to his town, he was wrong. Because he goes back to the hood. And all on the way he gets there, he's seeing things he's never seen for the first time. And he throws his walking stick away. And he's walking probably like a zombie because this is how he always walked. And um, he gets to his block. And all of a sudden his friends and family go, did he just look at me? He looked at me. And it looks like when he looked at me, he saw me and recognized me. Like, like, like he was not just looking at me with that, that blind stare, but with, he could, like he, there was something. In, and is that the same guy I used to, to beg And look at this, this is hilarious in the text. It it says this, some people said, yeah, that's the guy. Others said, no, it's just somebody who looks like him. But he kept saying, in the Greek it means always continually, I am the man, I am the man. Guys, it's me, guys, it's me. Hey, it's me, no, no, you're right, it's me. How many of us know that when God works in your life to help you see him for who he is, it can cause some division? You... You had a coffee with a friend who explained to you the gospel or you walked your way into church one day and God just spoke to your heart and your eyes metaphorically were opened and you put your faith in Christ and then you went home and you brought your faith into your house and your husband looked at you and said, you did that? Okay. And all of a sudden in your home, because of your faith, maybe you felt this tension, this wedge, The neighbors show us this, the beginning of Act 2, the division that comes as a result of this man's new life. The division. This is what marks the next segment of his story. And sight can be divided into two categories itself, between light and darkness. In Genesis, God looked over the darkness and said, let there be light, and the light divided the darkness. And since Jesus is the light of the world, we can guarantee that wherever the light shines, the darkness becomes divided. And the division of his neighbors produced an opportunity for him to share his story and to tell about what Jesus had done in his life. And in act two of this man's story, he's going to tell his own story four times. The first is here with the people on his own block. He answered, verse 11, the man called Jesus. That's very personal, right? The man called Jesus. You know that guy they called Jesus? Well, that guy made mud, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. And they said to him, and you can almost imagine the eye rolling that he got. Well, where is he? The neighbors asked. Sheepishly, we can imagine this man saying, well, I, I don't know. He sent me away, and then he left. <laughs> I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't seen him. It's like the moment where my five-year-old in my house comes up to me and says, like, my friend broke the door. And I'm like, sure, your friend <laughs> broke the door. Where is this friend? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. And we're so prone to disbelief. We're so prone to skepticism. You can see it right there in their, their minds. So the neighbors don't know what to do with this man's story. They call in some experts in the field of miracles. They go to the religious leaders. Right away, the religious leaders are interested because there's a huge problem with this man's testimony. They think he was healed on the wrong day. Go figure. Apparently, you've got to schedule these things out. John chapter 9, verse 14 specifically says that the day Jesus healed the man was supposed to be a, a day off. A day of, the word is Sabbath rest. 
Sabbath rest, not black Sabbath, that's a different thing. Sabbath in the Jewish world and the Jewish mind was a day instituted by God that the Jewish people were to, to keep super holy. It was one of the, the Ten Commandments. And God said this was good because it reminds you of the rhythms of creation that six days did the Lord work and on the seventh you shall rest. And you maybe equate this version of the Sabbath every time you curse Chick-fil-A for being closed on Sundays. And yeah, that's a very biblical conviction that drives that idea. It reminds us that we are dependent upon God for all things. We were designed to be most human when we were in a rhythm of work and rest modeled by God. But Sabbath was supposed to do something else as well. The Sabbath, in, in Deuteronomy, God tells his people, hey, on the Sabbath you're to remember that I created all things, but you're also to remember and tell the story of how I redeemed you out of the hand of slavery in Egypt and provided for you the exodus into a land that I showed you. So intertwined in this idea of Sabbath for the Jewish people was this idea of God as the creator and God as the deliverer. To do work on the Sabbath was an atrocity. To do work on the Sabbath was a sin. And it is incredibly ironic that the sin that Jesus commits on the Sabbath is the sin of making mud. This is the sin that he is up for, spitting in the ground and taking his finger and moving it around the dirt. You know, that's how you make bricks. Not with spit, with other things, but uh, this was their argument, that he worked. And how blind do you have to be to see Jesus creating anew on the Sabbath, getting this man his sight back, and delivering from his bondage to darkness and blindness, giving him light. Jesus wasn't sinning on the Sabbath. He was celebrating the Sabbath. He was fulfilling all that the Sabbath was designed to make us see and remember that God is the creator and God is our deliverer. And they look at him and they say, no, 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 come on, come on over here because um, we got a little question with your story. And so the blind, man who was born blind, he comes to the Pharisees and they ask him, well, well, tell us, how did you receive your sight? And he goes through it again for the second time. He says, well, Jesus uh, put mud on my eyes. I washed, I could see. And they were, needless to say, outraged. They say, this man can't be from God. He doesn't respect the Sabbath. But this very crazy thing happens in verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, you know, he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a, say it with me, division among them. A division. And that's a really funny word to use in a sermon on sight. Division. Break it down. It's die, vision. You see that? Division. Two visions. The Greek word is literally, it's schism. It's the ripping of a body in half. It's, it's to cut a body such that its parts no longer work together. And so if you cut a body in half, you take two eyes. And our eyes are designed to take in different, different visions, different images. And our brain is wired in such an amazing way where those visions come together and is synthesized through all the complexities of how God made the human eye so that when it's properly functioning, it sees one thing. A division is to see something one way and to have somebody else see the same thing another way. And isn't it strange how the light shines in the darkness and instead of bringing unity and harmony, the light brings division. The Puritans had a saying for this. They said Jesus is like the sun in the sky, and the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. 
You can be exposed to the same source of light and have two different outcomes. The same is true of Jesus the light. The light shines in a way that makes the blind see, but blinds those who say that they see. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Maybe I should say I could shed some light on it this way. It's still too early for that joke. Um, in this, the ceiling of this building are um, a bunch of super bright lights. Some of them point down. Some of them are um, pointing at me. And this building is designed for you to have the best vision so the lights work in your favor from the seats. They don't necessarily work in my favor on the stage. And so here's what I want to do. And just for a moment, don't freak out. Nothing, nothing, it's be just a second, but I'm going to turn the lights off. Okay? Don't worry. There will still be some light. Okay? But, but I just want to show you this. If we dim the lights... And these are the slowest dimming lights in the world. So gradual, so peaceful. Don't fall asleep. And um, if I dim, dim the lights, um, here's how light divides darkness. Um, on either side of me is darkness. There is a singular spotlight. I don't see, no, there's two. I, think, I guess for the sake of video, we've got to do two. But there is a, there, there is a light that is behind you pointing down at me. And I don't know if you can see it or not, but from your vantage point, I seem quasi-illuminated. I'm not sure if this is what you got out of bed to look at today. I'm sorry about that, but um, this is what you got. And from my vantage point, I can't see a single one of you. Why? Well, because the light is not working in my favor. I am postured against the light. You are getting the benefit of the light. The light is pointing at me. It's the same source, but, but it's giving you a different effect. You can see me. I can't see you. And I wish there was a way for me to honestly, like, give you the reciprocal thing. Actually, I, I do have one. This is a, um, a light that our team provided me. It's um, 8,000 lumens or something like that. This is what they use to find people in the darkness. And it has a little warning on here. It says, do not shine in people's eyes. It will cause blindness. I'm sure it will be fine. <clears throat> and so, um, if I can do this without, I, I know a really good optometrist if this goes bad. Just, just give me his card. Okay. Um, if, I, if I try and aim this and shoot it, I think that's where it is. Sorry, Eric, if I blind you. I blinded him in practice. He still can't see. Uh, if, I, if I shoot the light at you, you can't see, can you? I mean, don't look at it, guys, but, Right? Okay, we can have the lights back up. Thanks for playing along. We appreciate your patience with me. And seriously, I do know a really good optometrist. Um, this is what it looks like for us to be against the light. This is the division that happens if we share our story of what Jesus has done in our life. If, if light is on your side, it illuminates the thing that you're trying to see. And, and if light is against you, if you are postured against the light, it blinds you. And this is why you can share the story of what God has done in your life to someone who is postured against God, and they hear and they're like, oh, I don't get it, I don't believe that at all. And you can share the same story with someone who is postured towards where the light is working in their favor, and they go, isn't that amazing? I can't believe God did that for you. It all depends on the posture of how you are in relation to the light. Because where there is light, yes, the shadows cannot hide, but there is still division. Light divides darkness. And the division in this man's life only gets worse. The um, Jews would not believe his story that he was born blind unless they talked to some eyewitnesses, namely his parents. And so they 
convened a Senate Judiciary Committee. No comments. <laughs> had a trial in the synagogue. And in this, it was the center of their community. The chief witnesses were the man's parents. And on their way to the synagogue, they walked. I, I wonder what that conversation must have been like as they um, had already seen their son, who seemed very different, and they're being summoned now to the Jewish leaders, and they're walking along the way. And I'm sure they had the regular questions of like, well, how long is this going to take, and what are they going to ask us, and what's going to happen to our son? I imagine as they approached the doors of the synagogue, they saw a wanted poster right there that said, anyone claiming to have allegiance to this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is not welcome in our community any longer. They open the doors and they enter into a chaotic scene where people are shouting and there's their son sitting. And You can imagine as they walk in, the whole room hushes. And all of a sudden, the chief investigator stands up and points at them and says, is this your son? Was he born blind? How now does he see? And the parents probably look at each other. They look at their son, and their son looks back at them. And then they look at the crowd, and they look at that sign on the door, and they say, we're going to plead the fifth because, yes, this is our son, and, yes, he was born blind. He's telling the truth, but we don't know how he got his sight. Don't look at us. Actually, uh, he's not a minor anymore. He's of age. You can just ask him. He'll tell you. Thanks, mom and dad, for the cover, right? Like, wonderful parenting there. And so, for a second time, this man is put on the witness stand. This time, he's given an ultimatum. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Man, doesn't that sound like a statement that's just ripped out of our pages today? We know what we think is true. So prove it for us. We are dogmatic skeptics, which is an oxymoron. People who vehemently deny something because it doesn't fit our grid. And here are the Jews trying to figure this out, but they're jumping to the conclusions that they're determined are already true. And I wonder, what is it that could possibly reach down into the heart of a doubter and change their posture towards the light? What is it that could possibly reach into the mind of a skeptic and help them change their perspective? You know what it is? It's story. It's your story. It's what God has done in you. When you stand before someone and say, well, here's what I know is true, that this is my experience. I, I saw this happen, and, 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 and I, I, with my own eyes, witnessed this event. And um, it's story. Okay, you're not, you're not buying this, so I'll illustrate it for you. Um, I remember the first time I ever heard about Uber. Do you remember that time? I was like, <laughs> No. No way you could pay me enough money to call up a complete stranger, have them come in their hoopty, and give me a ride to wherever I want to go. Like, that's just not happening. I ain't never going to do that. That is ridiculous. And people who do that are way too trusting, and they're going to get killed. Just being true. All right, that's what, that's what I thought. And then one day I was, um, arms crossed like this, hearing someone talk about Uber. It was uh, Jen Wilkin. She's a Bible teacher. I think our ladies are going through one of her studies, and... Uh, she was telling this hilarious story at a conference about 
her time taking an Uber ride from the airport to the conference. And all of a sudden, I said to myself, you know what? That doesn't sound so bad. And you know what I did? The next time I was out of town, I didn't call a cab. I didn't arrange for someone to pick me up. I was like, I'm going to try this out. So I hopped online. I did the thing. I put the things in. And then all of a sudden, this guy uh, named Ricardo showed up with his Volvo. I thought, well, the car's safe, so that's good. And um, I didn't know where to sit. I thought it was like a cab. So I sat in the back seat. But he expected me to sit in the front seat. It was super awkward. And he kept saying, well, don't dock me stars for that. I said, okay, I don't know what that is, but that's great. And halfway through the ride, he says, well, do you want any water? It's like, no, I don't. I don't know you, man. <laughs> I'm, this is a financial transaction for me to get transportation. That's all this is. Stop making it more than it is. And aside from the three times that he turned the wrong way down a one-way street, it was a very pleasant experience. <laughs> totally a true story. And you know what it was? Why did my perspective change from being a skeptic to a doubter to someone who I actually participated? Because of story. Because someone I trusted told me their experience. It's the same exact way with us as Christians. In John chapter 9, verse 25, I don't know if you've got a regular Bible where it's like printed on pages and that's the only thing that's ever going to be on the page the rest of its life, or you've got like a tablet where you can just do whatever. You've got to circle John 9, 25, highlight it, whatever you've got to do. Remember John 9, 25, because this is the quintessential story for all Christians to frame their story by. He gets before these men and he says to them, this. He says, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, comma, now I see. I was blind, now I see. What's the difference between those two clauses? Like there's a comma there. My English nerd, super interesting to me. And you know what it is? It's that that comma represents the moment you met and saw Jesus. And so this man, in just a couple of words, has all taught us a very important lesson. And, and I think, friends, it grieves the heart of God, our inability to articulate to other people who he is and what he's done for us. I think that's part of why John goes to such great lengths to detail this long story for us. It's to show us something, is that uh, if you ever see something, if you see something, you should say something. Remember that old PSA from the Homeland Security back around 9-11? If you see something, say something. It was like designed to help us not feel guilty for ratting out our neighbors. Uh, I want to redeem that for us. Because friends, all of us who believe in Jesus have seen something. And this man is teaching us that if you see something, say something. But I know enough of us well enough to say uh, this. Many of you are like, great, I know what God's done in my life. I know the change that has existed. I know that I'm a different person. But what do I say? Can you just help me? He just says he was blind, now he sees. I was never blind. What do I say? And I think it's interesting what this man doesn't say. This man doesn't say, well, I was born a sinner because of the federal headship of Adam over all mankind. Therefore, I was destined to darkness and depravity and to the wonderful light of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, by God's sovereign providence, thus chose me to receive my sight, redeeming me from sin, justifying me by faith, is sanctifying me until the day that I die when I'll be glorified and I'll behold his eschatological kingdom forever. Did that answer your question? <laughs> no, he says, I don't know anything. 
except this one thing. I was blind. Now I see. And there's such beauty in that simplicity. It's such beauty in, in, in the urgency of that story. And how do you tell a Christ-centered story? How do you communicate to others the things that you've seen Jesus do in your own life? Well, it's this way. This man's taught us right here in John 9, verse 25. Three questions come from this. And if you're um, interested, you can write these down. This will help you craft your story. The first question that we always ask people when they're um, giving us their testimony is, well, uh, what was your life like before you met Jesus? What was your life like before you met Jesus? And here's the great thing. You don't have to go to school or be trained to know what your life was like before you met Jesus. You already know. You lived it. You know it better than anyone else in the world, aside from God himself. What was your life like? Be honest about it. The second question is, well, when did you meet Jesus? When did you meet Jesus? The third question is, well, what has changed since you met Jesus? Maybe for the sake of uh, expediency, I'll just tell you that if we were to introduce this man who was born blind to us right here and ask him these three questions, here's what would happen. We'd say, well, sir, um, what was your life like before you met Jesus? And he would say, it was very dark. <laughs> it was dark. I couldn't see. I was a beggar. I was lost. I was lonely. Well, when did you meet Jesus? Well, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like 25 minutes ago when you started preaching. But uh, really, it wasn't that long ago. And well, what's changed in your life since you've met Jesus? And he would say with great joy and enthusiasm, he would say, I can see. I was this way and now I'm totally the other way. I can see. And friends, if we could just grab on to those three questions and just, whenever we see something, say something. All throughout these commons, all throughout uh, these, these rooms in our church, hearing people bear witness to what they've seen Jesus do in their lives, it would revolutionize our church. In homes all throughout Northwest Indiana, talking about one another with, with, with what God we've seen him do in our lives would totally revolutionize our families. To put to words and to share the stories of what we see God doing, not then, but now. You believe God is on the move? Of course you do, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And all I'm saying is that if you see something, say something. Act 2, it ends for this man with the worst of divisions. He is cast out of the community. They follow through with their threat. And he's only been accused of defending what Jesus did for him. And that sounds like bad news. I just encourage you rather impassionately to go, you know, share your story. And for this man, it ended up really bad. So blessings to you. Enjoy solitude. But how many know that phrase, the night is always darkest just before the day dawns? And um, in Act 3, the day dawns. I want you to look with me at verse 35. Are you still hanging in there with me? Verse, 30, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And I imagine word coming to Jesus I don't know what he's doing, but someone comes and says, hey, remember that man who was born blind who you opened his eyes and then you kind of left him on his own? Well, he's been going around and people have been giving him the hardest time. They don't believe that you actually opened his eyes. They call him a liar. They call him a fake. They call him a phony. But he's been sticking in there. He's been telling people what he sees because you've opened his eyes. Isn't that amazing? And I imagine Jesus just like, I don't know if he was like sharpening his plane on his craftsman table. I don't know what he was doing, but he just drops it. And he goes, let's go find the guy. 
And Jesus heard that they cast him out. And look what it says. And he went and he found him. And he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And that's a loaded way to talk about the Messiah. And he answered, well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? This next verse changes everything. Jesus says, well, you have, say it with me, seen him. I just want to pause and let the poignancy of that moment bear its weight upon your soul. For Jesus to look a God who could not see square in the eyes and tell him, you have seen him. It was almost as if he was validating his very struggle and his very existence. To say, I see you too. And then Jesus says, you know my voice because I'm the one who sent you. You have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you now. And the man dropped to his knees and cried out, Lord. And he worshipped him. This is the third act of this man's story. It's the act of delight. Whenever it is that you speak up about what God has done in your life, sure there may be division, sure there may be hardship, but we have a promise from God that when we speak up for him, we will delight in God and God will delight in us. I mean, you can't not see Jesus' pure joy as he takes time out to go find this one man who has been sent astray. And oh, how Jesus cares, not just for the multitudes, but for the individuals. How Jesus cares, not just for Bethel Church, but for you. And to know that if, if, if we put our neck out on the line, if we take a relational risk and it costs us something, Jesus is right there with us, putting his arm around us, saying, you're going to see me. I'm right here with you. I'm talking the, this through with you. And yes, I know you feel like you've lost everything, but I am here and in my presence there is freedom. It's his delight. Friends, faith is not by sight. It's not by a system. It's by revelation. That God would reveal himself to us. Sometimes he does it all at once and we see and we know. But other times it's a process of seeing that produces in us this knowing. And in that process, it's our joy and our delight. Delight. Again, that's a funny word to use on a message on sight. D. Light, the elucidation of our joy, the fact that we have elation for what we've experienced. You can guarantee that if you see something and say something, it will ultimately re re return to you as joy in Christ. You know, this whole story, these three acts, the display, the division, and the delight, they remind me certainly of this text here in John chapter 9, but they remind me of another time in the Bible when um, the light was not in the world. It was that time when Jesus' work was over. These three acts tell the story of the man born blind, but they also tell the story of the one who puts an end to all blindness. I'm of course speaking of Jesus, the light of the world who on Good Friday was crushed and beaten himself. He hung on a cross to die as a criminal, an outcast in society. He assumed our deficiencies. 
there hung God's love on display for all to see. At the crossroads of humanity on the outskirts of Jerusalem, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that day upon the cross, Jesus didn't heal us with spit. It was actually us who spit at him. On this day, as God's love was displayed, it was Christ who was at work until his work was completed. And he cried out with a loud voice, It is finished. And act one of his life came to a close in that moment. And darkness began its division. And in that moment, the earth was covered with clouds. The curtain was torn in two. And his disciples who believed, they saw the light go out in the earth. And they themselves were divided and scattered to their homes. Because it was about to be the Sabbath, they laid him in the first tomb they could find. And Jesus was cast out on the outskirts of town. And there his body lay at the end of Act 2. But John tells us in chapter 20, verse 1, that on the first day of the week, Early in the morning, just before the dawn of a new day, a woman named Mary approached the tomb. She went to see Jesus, but he was not anywhere to be found. His grave was empty, the stone was rolled away, and it looked perhaps like someone had robbed his grave. But nearby was a, a man, possibly the gardener, she didn't know who he was. She couldn't tell who he was. She was in such despair, she couldn't see his new creation. And he said to her, woman, why are you crying? What have you come here to see? And she wept and said, I don't know where they've taken my Lord. Do you know where he is? The irony of it. And in that moment, Jesus compassionately looked upon Mary, who didn't know who he was and he turned the light on for her and she said to her Mary and her eyes were open and she saw who he was and she cried out with a loud voice Rabbi teacher Lord and it was her delight to fall at his feet and to worship him and you know what she did she got up she ran to the disciples and she said to them I have seen the Lord because if you see something, you say something. May we be people who sing the name of Jesus, who say what he's done, who see his glory and his goodness and his works displayed in our lives.